Want to know what I've learned looking at hundreds of Wedding Pro's offerings and pricing? Most of you were doing it wrong. Sorry to say it, but it's costing you business, both in clients' loss and money left on the table. But here's the good news. I've got insights to share with you today that are going to help you convert more couples and get them to feel comfortable paying higher prices for your services. In today's episode of Own Your Business, I'm going to share how I got my start practicing choice architecture at the Olive Garden of all places, what behavioral economics has to say about package and pricing design, and three keys to sharing your pricing to make it easy for people to say yes. Enjoy the show today. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. I've mentioned my background in hospitality before I started ID Action seven years ago, but I, I want to dig into it a little bit here because I, I think this is really helpful for understanding some of my interest and passion for the things that I share on the podcast. So I got started in hospitality way back in 1994 when I first got my driver's license. I, I had a truck and I could finally drive to work. I didn't have to pick blueberries in the field next to our house. And the job I got was at the Holiday Inn just down the road. It was like 10 minutes away. There was a restaurant there. I think it was called the Water Wheel. And I did busing in the restaurant, but also room service for the hotel. <laughs> Can you believe it? A Holiday Inn had room service. But it was really just a chance to play tray frisbee in the hallways with my buddies. Now, after I got out of high school, I went into college and I almost failed out of school my first year. I was on academic probation. I was not in a good headspace and I needed some time to kind of just reset, catch myself, figure out what direction I wanted to go with my life. So I took a year off and I had a big goal, which was to spend four months on a bike with my buddy Gwyn in Europe. And to make that happen, I had to earn money. I didn't have money for my folks. I had to earn it myself. And so I got a job working at the Olive Garden in Lake Oswego, Oregon, just outside of Portland. And we worked a lot. I worked six days a week, splits every day. And we made a good amount of money. I went on the trip, had an amazing time, life-changing experience, truly changed the trajectory of my life. And I went back to school and I ended up getting great grades. I was fully off academic probation and learned a ton. When I was in college, I still had to help pay for my school and my life. And so I got a job. This time at a different Olive Garden, the one in South Tacoma. And this one was incredibly busy. It was the sixth busiest in the country. And there was like, I think 500, maybe 600 at the time. So I was there working at the Olive Garden for a couple more years. And it was super, super interesting. Fertile ground for field testing different approaches to selling. Now, I was in college at the time studying rhetorical communication, basically the art and science of persuading people. But I was on my own from 5 o'clock to 10 o'clock most nights in the real world, actually trying out some of the things that I was learning. My campus was about 15 minutes away. I'd hop on my motorcycle, 
I rode a bike at the time from campus to the Olive Garden. I'd get out, take off my leather jacket and my helmet. I'd put a tie around my neck, lace up my apron and walk in and go to work. And I'd see how I could get people to give me the biggest tips possible. The school I went to was not inexpensive. And I had all sorts of travel plans that I wanted to do during the summers. Now, I had tons of techniques that worked really well to drive up those tickets. Little things like asking what they wanted to drink instead of water. When the normal line that everybody else used was, would you like something besides water? Or maybe I'd give them the visual presentation of the actual carafe of wine. I don't know if you've been to the Olive Garden lately, but you know, you have, they have these big bottles, these carafes around every corner. And most of the servers hated bringing them to the table underneath their arms or cradling them. But I knew that diners bought more when they saw the bottle, not just reading about it on the list. Another thing that I would do was I'd parade around my section with desserts. About mid-dinner, I'd walk out. I'd have a dessert tray filled with cheesecake and tiramisu and chocolate lava cake or whatever it was, chocolate indulgence, I think. And I would move real slow and I'd keep the tray low at table level when I walked by. Another thing that I'd do is I'd come back just before I dropped the entrees when I knew they were being plated up in the window. And I'd come back and I'd ask for a second round of drinks before they got too full or too far along with dinner to order another one. Now, this was back in 1999, 2000. I hadn't even heard of behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is the combination of economics and psychology. And we study it to learn how people make what looks like irrational decisions over and over and over again. Why does the way a question is phrased make a difference in whether someone gets a cocktail or sticks with water? Why does visual priming work to literally make people salivate when they see a dessert tray go by? Or why do people order another beverage when you suggest it rather than you wait for them to order it? The one that was easiest for me to experiment with was getting people to choose a particular entree. 25 years ago, the Olive Garden was pretty affordable. I haven't been there in a little while. I'm sure it still is. But running a three-table section, which is all they gave you, and having a never-ending possible option for a quarter of the year at less than $7 meant that it was really hard to get big tips to pay for college. I knew I needed to get the most from every table, every diner that I could. Add-ons like dessert, drinks, appetizers were the best way to increase the check average, but there was still money to be made by boosting the entree price based on what they chose, especially when I had to compete against unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks for $6.95. So I, I had my go-to routine. I'd greet a table, I'd hand out the menus, then I'd let them look through it. But I also knew that there were 30 options. It was hard to make it through it. And they were excited to be there with their friends or family or whoever it was. And so I'd come back with the drink order real quick. And this put some subtle pressure on them to make a decision on food, which was the next natural step in the dining experience. I rarely asked if they were ready to order. Instead, I just took control and offered to share my recommendations with them on the food menu. I'd start with a cheap favorite like chicken parm, and then I'd throw in the tour of Italy next as the middle option, which wasn't the most expensive entree, but it was near the top. I think it was 17 or 18 bucks. Then I'd talk about one of the seafood dishes like lobster spaghetti or shrimp scampi, which was always one of the most expensive. I'd embellish the description of the dish and 
talk about how the tour of Italy was the best of all worlds because you could actually get a sample of three of the most popular items on the menu. I would really pump up that middle option, that tour of Italy. My goal was to sell 50% or more of the entrees that I sold that night as tour of Italy's. Most of the time it worked. Diners appreciated my recommendations. And not only did it boost the total for the bill, but it made the decision-making faster, which meant that I could turn tables faster with bigger bills and happier customers. And all these things brought me bigger tips and more money to spend on things that I really loved, like finally getting a car instead of a motorcycle and spending the summer in Europe. Even back then, I was motivated to spend as much time as I could exploring the world, especially Europe. Now, over the past 15 years, as I started learning more about the science behind what I was doing instinctually at the Olive Garden, I now know that I was tapping into all of these different cognitive biases that human beings have. Things that I was doing are related to priming. That's that bottle of wine that you show them or the dessert tray, you're priming them. Visually, smell. I also use consumption language. I employ the planning fallacy, tapped into ego depletion. Herd effect, scarcity effect, asymmetry, loss aversion, endowment effect, and a ton more. I know the name for what it was that I was doing. So today, instead of spending my time getting diners at the Olive Garden to spend a whopping 30 bucks a person, I'm showing wedding pros like you how to get your clients to buy your services for $3,000 or $13,000 or $30,000. Here's the thing. The science is the same, whether you're working at the Olive Garden or you're selling $30,000 services to a couple. Sure, the messaging is different and the sales process is significantly more complex, but human brains are the same. And the presentation of products, what it is that you actually do for your clients is not much different than presenting the tour of Italy and lobster spaghetti and chicken parm. Now, this year I've done over 100 formal sales process audits. When I go through and I do a sales process audit, I look at the actual sales process that my client has. I look at their online presence. I read emails, correspondence and communication with their clients during the inquiry process. I look at their proposal or pricing guide, and I check out their packages and pricing specifically. And I find a lot of the same problems over and over and over again. The good news for you is that I talk about a lot of these problems and solutions on the podcast, and so you get free advice on how to fix some of them when you go through and look at your own sales process. And today, I want to talk about the way you create and share your packages and pricing. Call them packages, collections, offerings, whatever. I don't really care. They're all the same to me. And you know what? They often look the same to couples considering your services compared to someone else's packages or collections or offerings or whatever. They look the same. Let's take photographers, because I know a lot of you listening to this podcast are in that field. Tell me if this sounds familiar. For one of your offerings, you might list eight hours of coverage, a second photographer, engagement session, online galleries with downloadable images, keepsake, USB. Some of you might offer three options, but most of the time I just see a single option or base option and then an a la carte menu for couples to add on extras like hours of coverage or rehearsal dinner or albums. And then you toss a price in there and hope they pick you. That's your proposal. And you wonder why you're not getting enough bookings. 
or getting people to pay higher prices. And all those referrals that you're working so hard to get from all those planners out there, they come back and they tell you, we're going in a different direction after they see your packages and pricing. The reason is because you're not optimizing the design of the offer or the presentation within your product set. You're leaving too much to chance. But if you put purpose behind your design, if you structure the offer in certain ways, if you present products and pricing with intention, well, you can boost conversions as well as the average price. So today, for the rest of the podcast, I'm going to share with you three things that you can do right now to optimize your packages and your pricing. First one is offer three and only three options. Three and only three. People want to compare and contrast options. It's human nature because it helps us identify the value and the quality in what it is that we're looking at. Nothing has absolute value. And we don't understand things that we don't know. What we have to do is look at it relative to what we see elsewhere. And unless you want couples looking at other people who could provide the same services as you, you need to make sure that they're looking at other offers that you have on your proposal. Also, don't ask a couple to build their own packages. There's some research that shows that the IKEA effect imbues more value in what it is that people build. But overall, when you make people do the work, it increases what's called cognitive load, which makes it harder for them to build. They stop building because they get tired. Or maybe they don't think that they need it or deserve it. Why wasn't it in there in the first place? So they don't end up creating what it is that you know that they need or what they might be willing to pay for. The last really great thing about three and only three options is that it creates what's called the compromise effect. Or I, th I think I read somewhere, I've always just called it the Goldilocks effect. And that is that most people pick the middle option because they look at the high option as a splurge that they don't need or can't afford, but the low option is too risky. It could be too low quality. It might not give them what they want. Three and only three options. Second thing that you can do to make your packages and pricing more appealing is to actually make the offer more enticing. Let's go back to the photography package, right? Eight hours, two photographers, et cetera, et cetera. It looks and sounds the same as all of the other photographers out there. That's what pretty much everybody is offering. And if even if you've got three packages, they almost all look the same still. They have the same components. So something that kicks in when people are looking at a couple of different options, alternatives, is what's called the isolation effect. And the isolation effect in prospect theory says that when two options look fairly identical or actually pretty close to being the same, the buyer will focus on the differences between the two, right? Again, humans are always scanning the environment to figure out what's different, what's unique. So if your eight hours, two photographers, et cetera, et cetera, looks the same as the other options listed by your competitors, then the person who's looking at them, the buyer, is going to try and find what's different. And what's different between your options and the other people's? Price. That's right. 
price. Price is the big difference. And what's the competitive advantage for pricing? Why would a person pick one price over the other? Because it's less expensive. Now, I will admit some people prefer to spend more money on the higher priced option because usually they believe it will give them a higher quality experience or level of service. And you should certainly have a higher priced option in your product set for that reason. But when couples are comparing apples to apples, your eight hours to photographers with somebody else's eight hours to photographers, the same package with the same package, the buyer, the couple needs more context to pick a higher price for the exact same thing. Why should they pay more for something that looks exactly the same? This is the challenge that almost every single person I know, whether you're a photographer, a videographer, planner, stationer, caterer, venue, whatever it is that you do, runs into when you try to move into a premier luxury market. Why should a couple pay more for what looks to be exactly the same thing? Well, first of all, you got to make it look better. You got to make it look different. You can't have an apple to an apple. You want to have a whole fruit buffet of things that they can look at rather than just that one apple. Make it look more appealing. Pack it with value. Fill it with different things. Put stuff in there that other people aren't. Change the conversation. And that's largely the work of your proposal. Go listen to the podcast episodes where I dig into what you need to do to create context and value for what it is that you're offering. Third thing, present your numbers properly. Did you know that there's a ton of research that's been done on number psychology? I have an entire book devoted to 100 plus different pricing tactics to consider when you're setting your prices. It's called the Handbook on the Psychology of Pricing. I even have a sheet from the author that lists out the positivity, neutrality, and negativity to specific numbers between 100 and 1. It's wild. 18, really great number. 20, really great number. 19, not so good of a number. I don't know why, but people study this stuff. I just pull it out of the air and share it with you. Here are a few things to keep in mind when you're sharing your prices with clients. Make numbers smaller. Make numbers smaller. Even the wealthy like to hold on to their money. You don't stay rich by blowing all your money. So one of the things you can do is pay attention to what's called the left digit effect, which is that people remember the first number they see and they associate that. They put it into their memory with the price that they're going to pay. So make the first number small. There's a big difference, more than 50 bucks in the mind of the buyer if you drop your price down from, say, 4000 to 3950 What they remember is that it's 3000 something dollars rather than 4000 something dollars But you also want to make it physically smaller, too. Look at the number. How can you make it smaller? Remove the dollar signs. Remove the comma for four-figure pricing. Instead of four comma... Zero, 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 just do four zero zero zero. Eliminate the decimal. That's a character, right? Make it shorter. Eliminate the cents. I see this a lot with CRMs. They default to putting decimals and cents. If you own a CRM and you're paying attention, please make your stand out by doing that. Another thing you can do to make the numbers smaller, 
not just making it smaller with fewer characters, but make the actual font smaller. At least make it smaller relative to the body copy around it so they can read the features of your collection. And then when they get to the price down below, not above, but down below, it should be physically smaller in font size than what they just finished reading. Subconsciously, the brain goes, oh, this is not as big as what I was just looking at. It's smaller. You can see this in practice a lot at sales signs when you're walking through a department store. Clearly, there's a ton more to consider when it comes to the proper numbers. We haven't even talked about anchoring or decoy packages and pricing, framing, serial position, asymmetry, and a whole host of other things to consider. I took an entire course on product and pricing design in my Applied Behavioral Economics program. It's fascinating stuff, but at least you've got a few things you can put into practice on your next proposal. Optimize everything. Get more juice from the squeeze. Get as much as you can from each date possible, each person who inquires. If you're interested in having me look over your packages and pricing as well as the rest of your sales process, I got five spots that are opened up in January, just in time for peak inquiry season, when your proposals and your packages and your pricing matter most. Reach out if you're interested. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we'd settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 